This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I have thought about ending it all on many occasions. I have always worried about how that impacted on our three children. It has destroyed our lives. And although it was never my fault, I have always felt ashamed that they had to go through all of this. Those are the heartbreaking words of Oyeteyo Adedayo, one of the 59 sub-postmasters, recently cleared of false accounting, fraud or theft, in what is widely described as this country's largest miscarriage of justice. Fifty-eight million pounds has already been awarded in interim compensation and the government has agreed to fund it. Recent work by The Guardian suggests a staggering 233 million has been set aside to pay restitution. Hundreds more cases like Oyeteyus are awaiting review. Welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alexandreou. To untangle this truly astonishing tale, I am lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Hannah Quirk, reader in criminal law at King's College London, with a particular focus on claims of wrongful conviction. Dr. Quirk is on the editorial board of the Criminal Law Review and a trustee of Transform Justice. Welcome to the podcast, Hannah. Hello, thanks for having me. Hannah, give us the short summary, the sort of noisy pub version of what has happened, and we will then dive into individual aspects, if that's okay. Okay. This is what the Prime Minister's called one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in our history. And it's one of those really shocking cases that I think does cut across so that the public are aware of it. The post office installed a new software system across its whole network of, of post offices. And this started to show up discrepancies in the amount that the sub postmasters and mistresses had in their tills and the amount that the computer software said that should be there. Now, these were people of really good character. If you think very often in small places, the person who runs the post office is, is a very trusted figure and known to everybody. They're a really key figure in their communities. And these people were telling the post office that the system's not working. Many of them were phoning the helpline saying, there's something wrong here. It's showing money's gone missing, which we can't account for. And the post office told them, no, you're the only person that's having problems with this. If there's a shortfall in the money, you've got to make up the mm. shortfall. So people were borrowing money. They were remortgaging properties. And eventually they were prosecuted by the post office itself because the post office has got the powers to prosecute people. And many of them pleaded guilty because they were told if you pleaded guilty to a, a less serious offence, then you can avoid going that's to true. prison. 
And you can imagine the terror these people felt that, that they might end up in prison for a crime they hadn't committed. And they've spent years and years trying to clear their name. And the post office knew, they clearly knew that there were flaws in the system, that it couldn't be relied on. And they hid that evidence from the people that they, they knew had been wrongly convicted and covered this up and obstructed it for years and years. And eventually, over the last couple of years, these people have gone to the Court of Appeal and have had their names cleared and their convictions quashed. Yes, a small group of them has. Um, how many sub-postmasters do we think were involved and over what sort of period? I know that the post office has written to 540 people, so we can take that as, a, as the low estimate, right? But I have, I have heard numbers up to 800. They prosecuted, I think, 736 staff between 1999 and 2015. So that's like one prosecution a week. And again, it seems odd that it didn't seem to occur to anybody that suddenly all these corrupt sub-postmasters and mistresses were coming to light, where previously there hadn't been such a problem. So it, it's a huge number of individuals. And of course, if you think many of them lived there with their families, they were often family businesses, that the, the knock-on effects, we've got the individual victims who were wrongly convicted, but then their families and the damage that was done to the, the wider communities as well. That aspect of the case, I found, as someone with a sort of long-ago legal background, I found that very difficult. I mean, the post office presumably will have a legal department. So it's not like this stuff was going through a big variety of sources. I mean, they told these people their cases were unique. Is it tenable to think that the post office genuinely thought there was a, a sudden fraud epidemic that just coincided <laughs> with them moving on to this system? I find this really very hard. It seems extraordinary. And they were presented with evidence repeatedly that there were problems within the system. Fujitsu told them that there were, you know, whistleblowers were saying there are issues with this system. I think they were telling the sub-postmasters that nobody else has access to the system. And it was relatively easy to establish that that wasn't the case, that it was possible for other people to access the system. There were bugs and there were glitches. As you said, I mean, it's, it stretches credulity to think nobody thought it was an odd coincidence. They commissioned an independent report, which they shut down, I think, the day before it was due to report. They've resisted investigations by members of parliament, by journalists who've done some really good work on this. And the civil action, they tried every trick possible to resist the litigation there and were criticised in, in very strong terms by the judge for that. Hannah, why is the post office, to an extent, still resisting? I mean, it's it's been seeking to appeal bits and bobs and aspects of various cases and sort of resisting the quashing of, you know, several. What's going on there? Why are they still entrenched when it's so obvious to everyone else this has been just a massive cock-up? I think it's more than a cock-up, actually. Um, I think there was a, it would seem that there were people who, who knew what was going on and didn't act. It, it wasn't necessarily just a mistake. There were decisions taken that... Uh, they didn't want to disclose information. And uh, again, if, if you are the investigating party, so in a normal prosecution, the police investigate a case, they would look at the material, they've got powers the ordinary citizen hasn't got, and they have an obligation to share that with the other side. 
So if they find something that is helpful to the defendant, they're supposed to hand that over. And this wasn't done by the post office, who was acting in this case as the victim, as the investigator and as the prosecutor. Which seems extraordinary in its own right to have that that power. Utterly extraordinary, yes. Yes, and, and quite wrong. And again, normally you, you have somebody to check what's going on because it's very easy to get into that mindset. If, if you are convinced that these people have done wrong, everything starts to look incriminating for them. That's why you need these, somebody else to challenge things and say, well, are you sure about that? What was going on in the organisation at the time? Obviously, um, parts of the post office were being sold off. So there's suggestions that they didn't want the reputational damage. The individuals involved are all have been well remunerated, are significant figures in in various companies, have received honours from from the Queen. If they start to admit wrongdoing, then there's there's a whole chain of, of things that may follow. It's interesting, researching the case, I couldn't help but draw comparisons to how the BBC is being treated over what is an individual doing something wrong sort of 25 years ago versus of how little political attention this has had. And also the Daniel Morgan case, which I, I know you've covered as well, that, that, I, that sense of an organisation wanting to, to protect itself if there's a, you know, that something has gone wrong. Yes, the, the corruption of sort of wanting to protect your reputation mm-hmm. at all costs and willing to go to lengths and crush people in order to do that. And what I understand is that even though the post office in December 2019 paid 58 million in compensation to wrongly accused people, the language of the recent case being so strident opens the door for even more claims because it basically says that the post office acted in bad faith. Is that true? I would think so. I'm not an expert in in civil litigation. I think what, mm. what's really difficult is that those who already received a settlement, it came out as a fairly derisory amount for each person once their legal fees had been paid. And I think the post office is suggesting now that they've had their compensation, so they can't be added into any new fund, which seems deeply unfair, as these are the people mm. who have you know, reached out to other postmasters they, they formed a, an organization a support group for them and you know if you think these are individuals who've had no contact with the criminal justice system before necessarily who were thrown into this really really difficult situation and particularly for yeah. the civil cases couldn't get legal aid so many of them were having to to defend themselves some ended up um, declaring themselves bankrupt because because they lost so much unfortunately in this country we have the most appalling scheme for for people who've been wrongly convicted. It's almost impossible to get compensation if you've been wrongly convicted of a crime. You have to be able to prove Mm. that you didn't commit the crime. Proving a negative is not easy, is it? (laughs) Almost impossible in any case. So my understanding is they they wouldn't be eligible for the statutory compensation scheme for, for miscarriages of justice. Again, this all takes a long time, and this has been going on for some people for over 20 years now. Some of them have died. Um, very tragically, one, one killed themselves. So yes. the longer this drags on for, then, OK, they'll, they'll get a settlement eventually. But I think there really is a need to expedite these proceedings. What about political responsibility? I actually remember Peter Lilly waving the card 
he said would replace the benefits book at a Tory conference in the mid-90s, which is what started this whole sort of need for a computer system. Several governments have been and gone. Why did none of them listen? I imagine it was quite a long way down there list of priorities. It's one of these things as well that I suppose looks obvious with hindsight. You need to be taking quite a close look at these things. If ministers are being told everything's fine, that we've just suddenly got this wave of corrupt postmasters that, you know, we're taking action against this now, we're cracking down, this is the benefit of the computer system is we we can uncover all this wrongdoing. You can see how Mm. a very positive spin could be put on that. I think it was particularly cruel how the post office isolated these individual people, telling them that they were the only person having these problems, they were the only person to be having the shortfall. But yes, undoubtedly, questions do have to be asked. And it's one of the difficulties, I suppose, with such a a fragmented system and these partly privatised bodies. When you had a, a postmaster general who had a seat at the cabinet table, there was a fairly clear line of accountability. I'm glad you brought that up because I have seen a school of thought that this is symptomatic of this fragmentation and specifically of a sort of culture of government outsourcing everything IT without retaining any internal know-how that can act as a check on whether an organization is getting what it paid for, whether it's working as intended. Do you have any thoughts on that? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is Clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Yes, and particularly there was a change in the law a few years ago. Previously, if you were prosecuting on the basis of computer evidence, you had to show that it was reliable. And then the onus was changed to say that it was assumed computer information would be reliable unless you could show otherwise. So there's clearly, I think, a need perhaps to be more sceptical about some of this. Mm. Now, this is a huge IT project, clearly, if you think about how many um, sub-post offices there are across the country. And you're quite right, this needs very current expertise to be able to ask the right questions and to to interrogate what IT specialists are telling you. So there are problems within the civil service having to, to undertake those roles. And, and also if, if auditors are brought in from a very limited range of companies, again, perhaps that there's not sufficient scrutiny of that. But I think it's, it's very, very important that that accountability has to be drawn in some ways. And... As I said, it was very easy or relatively easy in a a nationalised model to do this. 
This is clearly a problem that cuts across all sorts of areas. So within the yeah. health service or within education, are we actually getting the IT infrastructure that we need? And is it secure? I mean, not just from bugs and gremlins that are wrongly convicting people, but is somebody else manipulating evidence that, that we're taking a sort of gospel truth? Yes, the ransomware attack a couple of years back on the NHS system, I think, was an eye-opener for many people. It was genuinely difficult in preparing for this to hear the testimony of those affected. You know, from the man who had spent his 60th birthday in jail to the pregnant woman incarcerated for months having to give birth while wearing an electronic ankle tag and worrying what the midwife Mm. might think of her. You know, the surviving spouses of people who died without being exonerated. And as you said, there's even a documented case of someone taking their own life. And all the while, I got the sense that the misery has been magnified by being so stretched over time. Why has the process been so slow? I mean, once you, once you do the test case mm. that says, yes, this system was, you know, making mistakes and the post office was trying to cover them up. Why must each individual case then go through the same lengthy rigmarole? It's a really good question. You're right, it's heartbreaking to hear some of those stories. And I think that's one of the really powerful aspects of this story is that it could have been any of us. I think very often when people do hear about wrongful convictions, it's seen as, oh, well, they must have done something. If they didn't commit that crime, Mm. they did something else. But I think these kind of cases cut through that people can understand any of us could be victim of a miscarriage of justice. And it's why it's so important that there are safeguards in place to try and stop this happening. Was there any racial or class element? Because I have to say, watching a parade of people who are being exonerated to prepare for this podcast, just the absence of white middle class people was pretty notable. I think that's something that should be looked at in many areas of the criminal justice system. Black and Asian people are overrepresented. And as you said, a lot of the sub-postmasters and mistresses were, I think, many of of Indian origin. I think that is something that would be important to look at. Was there a bias in which cases were prosecuted? It may come down to something like those who didn't have the resources to fill the gaps in the till. Yeah, that, maybe it's socioeconomic. Yeah, so people had the, the money or they could borrow money and then make up the shortfall, then prosecutions didn't follow. What struck me is the number of people who went into debt to pay back money they had never taken in the first place and pleaded guilty to avoid a tougher sentence. Is there something we can learn from this? Is there something fundamentally rotten in a system of plea bargaining that shoehorns innocent people into guilty pleas? Uh, Yes. It's a much bigger problem in the States where prosecutors can more blatantly negotiate. In this country, it's, it's less overt, but it's particularly a problem where you'll cross the threshold for a custodial offense. So if you imagine... These, how these people were feeling, the thing they were most frightened of was, was ending up in prison. Mm. So if they were told, if you plead guilty to a lesser offence, and it's, it's such an awful choice. And often they make. went to prison anyway. Indeed, yes, which is particularly 
grotesque. Yeah, I've seen example of people who basically went into debt to pay the money back, pleaded guilty, and went to prison for yeah. months anyway. Yeah. To have that dilemma, to know that you haven't done something wrong, and but to have to say you have just to, because pragmatically that will stop your children being taken into care or your parents losing their home. It's just awful, um, unimaginably awful. Why, why has this not been a bigger story? I, I mean, it, I know it's been a big story, but it feels like it should be a much bigger story. Is it just that Brexit and COVID-19 are swallowing all before them, like, like the news equivalent of Pac-Man? Or is it just not sexy enough for tabloids? Or is there maybe a worry that the general public will miss the diachronic element of the story and just blame the current government? I don't understand why this isn't sort of front page news for for days on end. Yes, I mean, relatively speaking, it's had far more coverage than any other miscarriage of justice in, in a long, mm. long time. I mean, for years when I was teaching my students, I'd talk about the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four because they were the cases that, that cut through. And then eventually yeah. I realised that none of my students knew what I was talking about because they'd all been born after um, they, they were released by, by the Court of Appeal. Um, making a murderer in the United States has really kind of grabbed public awareness. Yeah. But as these cases go, this has had quite a lot of coverage. I suppose it's quite technical. You know, it's had the inner workings of an IT system, um, which is perhaps less exciting than massive police corruption or somebody falsely confessing. Yes. And also, or someone having an affair. Well, indeed, yes. Um, <laughs> we do seem to have an ability to miss what the really important story is. What I hope is that the coverage this case has got, and I think that the human interest side of it is, is so important, that, but that we can use that to raise public awareness about some of the really serious things that are wrong with the criminal justice system at the moment. Yes, and I'd like to finish on this. So... Have we learned any lessons already? So is it changing things already? What lessons should we learn that we haven't yet? I mean, what reform should this lead to? I will take it as read that we need to separate those functions of the post office as victim, prosecutor, and, and sort of executioner. But what else do you think this could lead to that... that we'll see some positive come of this yeah. calamity. Oh, you've taken it as red. I don't think the government has. They've ignored the recommendations of the Justice Committee that private prosecutions should be much more strictly oh. regulated, unfortunately. I think it shows the importance of media because a lot of this work was done by journalists uh, sticking with this story. You know, private Eye and, and Nick Wallace did um, an excellent podcast on this. I think the key thing is the importance of lawyers and of legal aid. So if you are charged with an offence, so if you run somebody over in your car and you're charged with death by dangerous driving, if you're a teacher or a nurse and a former patient or pupil makes an allegation of sexual abuse against you from 25 years ago, you may have to sell your house or use all your savings in order to defend yourself. And even if you are acquitted, you won't get your full costs back. If somebody is suing you, so civil legal aid is almost non-existent. So again, many of these postmasters found themselves having to represent themselves against very skilled post office lawyers. 
I think it also shows the importance of the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which, as I said, was set up in 1997 um, after the Birmingham Six case to investigate miscarriages of justice. It's had a lot of criticism recently um, and the government reviews it every so often to see if, if we still need it or not. I think this case in particular shows people why it's so important. Yeah. And that it needs more staff, not only do we need it. <laughs> it, it needs a lot more staff and money, yes. And you know that those cuts in funding have been a problem throughout. Particularly, you know, we've had cuts of over a third in police budgets and prosecution budgets. Legal aid hasn't had a rise in something like 25 years. So mm. you're asking fewer people to do more and more work and they will cut corners, yeah. understandably, and... The non-disclosure of important information in this case was deliberate, but sometimes it will just have been people didn't have time to look at things properly. So that's why we need more funding. And this isn't about letting criminals off or abusing the human rights system. Any of us could be the victim of crime or the victim of a miscarriage of justice. And these protections are so, so important because, as you said, Guilty people can be acquitted if the system is, is corrupted. And yeah. as so tragically happened in this case, innocent people were wrongly convicted. In the hundreds. Dr. Hannah Quirk, thank you for helping me explore this difficult subject with such care. Listeners, remember there's a new bunker daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Saturday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. The last few months have been a period in which we have signed away vast aspects of our personal liberty and civil rights because a pandemic has demanded it, in which a government with scant regard for the rule of law, but a large majority, has given itself exceptional powers to impinge on our lives without minimal scrutiny or accountability, and the dummy in which millions of us suckle for comfort is the notion that only people who have done something wrong need to worry about the power of the state to crush citizens. As hundreds found out, that is a fairy tale we tell ourselves so we can function without being terrified. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.